0: So what time is it? It's hard to know what to do if we don't know what time it is. When we know what time it is, we have a good idea of what we should be doing. Peter wants to give us a sense of the time so that we know what we're doing. Let's hear God's word. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. If you would turn there with me. Peter writes and he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... We should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join in the same flood of debauchery with them, and they will malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered again this morning, oh, to give our hearts to you in worship. We do it in song, we do it in prayer, we do it as we sit at your feet to hear from you. Would you speak into our hearts and into our lives? Would you remind us what time it is so that we might be about your business? We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what I should be doing if I don't know what time it is. If you tell me the time, I can give you a good idea what it is I should be doing at that time. If you told me it was 2 a.m., I have a good idea what I want to be doing at that time. If you tell me it's 7 a.m., I know a good idea what I'll be doing at 7 a.m. If you tell me it's noon, I'm probably pretty hungry. I have a good idea, you know, what I'm going to be doing and where you'll find me. And There's some variation in that. It depends on the day. Thursday morning at 8 o'clock, I know where I am and what I'm going to be working on. Saturday at 8 o'clock, it's going to be a little bit different. Sunday morning at about 11.20, I know probably what I'll be doing. If we know what time it is, we have a pretty good idea what we should be doing at that time. So we need to talk about what time it is, so we know what we should be doing. Jesus said in Mark 6, Matthew 16, it's there in your bulletin under the first point. <clears throat> Jesus says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. You have a good sense of whether it's going to rain or not. But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Jesus was speaking to his disciples and speaking to the crowds, and he's telling them, you don't know what time it is. You haven't figured out what time it is. The kingdom of God is here, he kept trying to tell them. They don't seem to be understanding the time. See, Peter says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. He wrote that 2,000 years ago. Well, yeah, almost. The end is of all things is near. Now imagine when I see hear that, I, it, the first thing I think of is in most movies. I've actually seen this kind of thing in New York in some times, but you know, you imagine somebody wearing a sandwich board, you know, with a long beard and long scruffy hair and, and, and sprawled on it and dripping paint is the end is near. Right? This is the, the <clears throat> but just imagine that you come across that guy in a sandwich board and it's the Apostle Peter and you and he's right. The end of all things, he says verse seven, is Near. Imagine just for a minute that he's right, that the end is near. Uh, What would that mean for us? What would that mean for you? If you believe him, how would it change your thinking? How would it change your choices, your lifestyle? I want to change your, your, your intensity or your deliberateness? You know, I, I mean, you ever play those games where the, the thing starts running out, starts beeping faster, time, time is running out, and, you know, the, the, the intensity rises, the, the, you know, something is going on. And he says, if time is running out, how does that change our intensity, our choices, our decisions? See, it's the time of Messiah's reign. In verse 1, Peter says it, since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh. In the past tense, he has suffered in the flesh. When it says he suffered in the flesh, he's talking about the cross. That this isn't a general suffering that he, that he endured. He's, he's talking about his, his passion, the whole of his passion and his being tortured and suffering and dying. <clears throat> we see that in verse 18. If you go back into chapter 3, just in verse 18 there, it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins so of the suffering that he suffered was for sins. This is his passion. This is his death on the cross. And Peter says the time of his suffering is past. Christ suffered for sins. That's done. It is behind us. The time of his exaltation is here, right? He is reigning as king. His reign is king. We come. We know because the very verse before this, verse just go back one verse into chapter 3, verse 22, and we're told that he is, that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has gone into heaven, he is at the right hand of God. All angels, all authorities, all powers have been subjected to him. The time of his suffering is past. Christ reigns on high. All authority in heaven and earth, he tells his disciples, has been given to me. Now, Go. And as you're going, make disciples of all the nations. And so he says, because it is the time of Messiah's reign, verse 2, we are no longer to live the rest of the time in the flesh, that is for the rest of our lives. For the rest of our lives, no longer live for human passions, but live, he says, for the will of God. In the time of Jesus' reigning, When his kingdom has come, in some respect it is, and that's why we pray that prayer, when his kingdom comes, his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is why he says, no longer live for your passions, but live for the will of God and pray the prayer, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, not just out there and sometime in the future, but today and right now in my life when the kingdom comes here where Christ is set apart as Lord in my heart, And His will begins to be done in my life as we live under the reign of the risen King. Now let me say something that is going to surprise a bunch of you. Just hear me out. The time of Jesus' reign is now. And I believe that this is what the Bible means when it talks about the millennial reign of Christ. I believe that we have been in the millennial reign of Christ, that the millennium that people talk about and, and often think of as future, I think we've been in the middle of it since Jesus came. I believe that what Jesus, what the, what the Bible means by the millennium is the time from between Jesus' first coming until he comes again. is his millennial reign, because the reign of Christ from Revelation 20, I don't believe is supposed to be a literal thousand years. In fact, most of the numbers in the book of Revelation are figurative. And and often interpreted that way, and the number a thousand, particularly because the word the number thousand in the Bible is, is used figuratively through, in almost every place you read it. The Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills. There are a lot more than a thousand hills in the world. So let me ask you: Does the Lord own the cattle on a thousand hill, and the thousand and first hill, and all the rest of those belong to other people? No, what does he mean when he says the cattle on a thousand hills? He says it's a huge number. There are a lot of hills in the world. I really haven't counted. I'm not counting them. I'm not trying to give you the number. But the cattle on a thousand hills. It means on all those hills belong to the Lord. Peter's going to say. I'm going to quote him in a minute in another context. But Peter says in Second Peter that a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day to the Lord. He's like, what is he saying? That on the thousand and first day, it's it's some. No, he he is saying time. One day, you know, a thousand years for us it is meaningless to God. It, it, it's not an exact moment as God speaks. A thousand years is used figuratively to speak of long periods of time without precision. And I would say this that Christ reigns over the earth now. See, we think of the millennial reign when Jesus will sit on David's throne and reign over the earth for a thousand years. Well, Jesus sits on David's throne right now. If you look in your bulletin, Acts chapter 2. Verse 30 and 31, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he tells them, knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that is to David, you can look at it, God swore an oath to David that he was going to set one of his descendants on his throne. And then you can look at Acts chapter 2. It talks about that descendant not seeing corruption, him being an eternal reign, that God would would place a king on his throne forever. So there's this promise of this kingship, this eternal kingship. And, And Peter, what Peter says is, I can tell you, David is in his grave. He died and was buried and he saw corruption. And then he says this, he says... But knowing that God had sworn him this oath that he would set a descendant on his throne, being a prophet, the passage says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. When, when God promises to set one of his descendants on his throne, Peter says he, David looked ahead and saw that happened at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was, he was ascended, and that's verse chapter 3, verse 22. He sits at the right hand of God. David's throne was a picture That little throne and a little building on that little piece of land in the Middle East was a picture. It was a picture of the throne room of God. It was a symbol. David was God's man. He was his under king, his under shepherd, who sat in a throne and reigned over his people. And it was a picture of the reign of God and said someday there will be a a, a descendant of David who ascends a throne and it will be an eternal throne and he will reign over the earth. And Peter says that happened in the resurrection. And the New Testament testifies it again and again. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. What David's throne pictured is now is a much bigger thing. That that, that little throne in Israel is a very small thing. He sits on the throne and he reigns over the nations of the earth. Peter says the Davidic promise is fulfilled. The descendant of David has been enthroned. That he reigns on high, and every authority, and every power, and every angel, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him. And that's how he is building his kingdom. And that's how it goes forward. You might say to me, well, Robert, in Revelation 20, verse 2, it says. You might say this to me. In Revelation 20, verse 2, it says that before that thousand years, Satan is going to be bound. Doesn't seem like Satan is bound. So you can't be right. Well, it says, if you read the passage carefully, Satan will be bound so that he can deceive the nations no longer. There's a very specific binding. There's a very specific limitation that will be put on Christ and he will not be able to deceive the nations any anymore. If you look in your bulletin of Mark chapter 3, verse 27, Jesus is casting out demons and the Jewish leadership is confronting him and saying, you're casting out demons. You, you must be in league with the devil. Because you have power over devils. And Jesus says, well, that's one possible explanation, thanks a lot. Uh, but there's another one. There's another one. You know, let me give you another option to that. The kingdom of God might be here. The king might be here. And he says this: How can a man enter the strong man's house, that is the devil's house? He, this is the context. He's casting out demons. How can he enter into Satan's house and cast out demons? So how can a man enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods, save people? Unless he binds the strong man first. And so Jesus there, in no uncertain terms, is saying, I have bound the power of the devil. I've entered the strong man's house, and what, do you, what am I doing? I am plundering his goods. I am plundering his kingdom. With the gospel, I am setting people free and pulling them out of the world, the, the, the God of this world, and out of his kingdom and into my kingdom. I have begun. I reign. All authority on heaven and earth is mine, and I am plundering the enemy's kingdom. What is new in the New Testament is that the gospel is not confined to Israel. Right, it says that the Satan will be bound so that he can deceive the nations no more. And what is new in the New Testament is this, that the gospel goes not just to Israel but the nations that have been deceived for thousands of years living in darkness and worshiping false gods and all kinds of brutal religion. The new thing in the New Testament is that the nations are deceived no longer. The gospel light goes forward in the first time in the history of the world the, the nations, every tribe, nation, language and tongue is being plundered to populate his kingdom. It's happening now. It goes on now. Jesus reigns now. The nations are being plundered now. They are deceived no longer now as God opens blind eyes across the world. So it is the time of Messiah's reign. He has been enthroned. The time of suffering has passed for him and he sits enthroned and he says, I will build my church and the very gates of hell will not stand against it. Why? Because I reign in all authority, and all power, as the son of David on the throne of God himself. And so he says in verse 1, so arm yourselves. If you know that Jesus is seated there, he's sitting there, he has all authority there, everything is submitted to him there, this is what Jesus is doing, and therefore since he is done suffering in the flesh, you need to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Because whoever has suffered in the flesh is ceased from sin, he is done with sin. It's behind us in that respect, so as to live for the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but now I live for the will of God. I live to serve the King, because when the kingdom comes, His will is done. And in our lives, I like to think it is beginning to be done again, as He redeems us from an empty and dead way of life, to begin to live for Him. Suffering in the flesh refers, as I said, to his passion, to his victory over sin and death. Paul says it this way. It's under your second point there in your bulletin. I said it's a time of Christ's reign, and it is a time then for a new attitude. That's what he says, a new way of thinking. And so in Romans 6 and 7, he talks about the same. In Romans 6, verses 6, 7, 10, and 12, he talks about the same thing. I like to interpret Scripture with Scripture. You're trying to understand what Peter is saying when he says, you know, forever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's done with sin. He no longer lives that kind of a life. He's set free for a new life. Paul talks about the same thing, only he says it this way, that we know the old self was crucified with him in order that this body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we might be ceased to sin, that we might be done with it. So that we would no longer be enslaved to it. That's what he means, that we'd be set free to do the will of God, to live for him. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. For the death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all, that now he lives, he can live for God, and he lives for the will of God. And so he says to us, you also must consider, you must, as Peter says, you must have a new way of thinking that thinks like this, ceasing from sin, dead to sin, as Paul says it, think like this, consider it like this, yourselves: dead to sin, but alive to God, alive to His will, alive to his way, alive to his kingdom, alive to his reign. Dead to sin, the time of suffering is past. The victory over sin and death has been accomplished. The king has been enthroned. Be done with sin. Get into the will of God. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its passions. That's why he says, for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer living for human passions, but for the will of God. We share in the death and victory of Christ through faith. And so there's a certain way that we are supposed to consider ourselves in our situation. If we know what time it is, there's a certain way that we evaluate our, our situation and the way that we should be thinking and the way that we should be living and where we should be giving ourselves. As Paul says, we're dead to sin and alive to God, so think and act like this. Peter says, arm yourselves with a new way of thinking and change the way you think the rest of our lives for Him. Galatians 5.24, there in your bulletin, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and its desires. And he describes those in verses 3 and 4. He gives some examples. This is not an exhaustive list. You can find lists like this all over the New Testament. What the Gentiles are up to. That is, the people who don't know Christ. The people who have not seen him as king and bowed the knee and begun to serve him and not themselves. Because when they're serving themselves, this is what you get. Right, they're living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. They're oversexed, they're overdrinking, they're overeating, they're overliving. They live for themselves. They, their lifestyle is one of excess and self-indulgence, because it ignores God, because it ignores the King. The King has come, and they don't know it. But when the mind is renewed and we have a new way of thinking and we begin to live underneath the lordship of the risen Christ and we begin to abandon that lifestyle and we begin to, to do the will of God, it's, it will not go unnoticed. It will draw fire. Right? It, will, it will be noticed, it will be resented, and we will come under attack. And that's what he says in verse, I guess it's 5, 4. With disrespect, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood. They, they malign you. You come under fire. You come under attack. But in verse 5, he says that those who do this, they will give an account. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will, those who defy God, he says, will be accountable. And he says, so he says this, you know, that the, he is, the judgment is ready. He is ready to judge and the time, the next verse, is at hand. This is what time it is. The judgment is ready and the end of all things is at hand. When we look down the corridor of history, the next thing that we the next time that we see God intervene, the next thing He has promised us to come and will happen will be that Christ will return. All right, so in that sense, we're in the last days. We're thousands of years, that we longed for the Messiah, and they waited. Then there was a time when Messiah came, and he suffered, and he died, and now we've moved past that, and the New Testament says, with the coming of Messiah, we enter into this period before he comes again, and that period before his coming, and suffering, and dying, and victory over sin and death, and his coming again in power to subdue the earth, he says, that window of time are the last days. Right, you see it in your bulletin. Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. This is Pentecost. The Spirit of God has been poured out. The Shekinah glory in tongues of flame settling on God's people. They're filled with the Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. Something is going on. The crowd can't quite figure it out. They think maybe they're drunk. They think Jesus is in league with demons. They think the Christian church, these early believers baptized in the Spirit are, are drunk. And Peter answers them and says, let me tell you what's going on. Have you ever read Joel? He begins to quote Joel. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's what's going on. The last days are here. The Messiah, the King is here. He has ascended to his throne and we have entered into a period of time where he reigns over the earth and he builds his church and he he draws all nations to himself until he comes again. Let me just say a word on verse 6 and how it fits in between 5 and 7. It's another one of those that <coughs> Peter, the way he says things and the way it gets translated is hard to understand. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Peter is simply saying that he's speaking to the hope of believers who have already died. <coughs> Part of the trouble for the New Testament church was the idea that, that um Christ is coming back soon, and so they have this expectation. The end is near. They have this sense that we have entered into a last days. They didn't know how long it was Be No man knows the day or the hour. It can be, it's going to be, ends up being a very long time, but they don't know it. They, they know Christ is coming, and Christians start dying. And they try to understand, how do we understand this? You know, are they missing out? When Christ comes back, they've already died. They're going to miss out on the return of Christ and this, this, this uh, glory that's going to come when he gathers his church. And so Peter speaks to that situation. That's what verse 6 is about. He's telling them even though they've died, the gospel has already been preached to them. And though they've been judged in the flesh, in one sense, the spirit lives. And it lives with God. You know, that judgment in the flesh can be, they're either martyred, that they were judged by the world, and in the flesh they were put to death, but their spirit lives, and they will be, as Paul says, and this is, I think, helps us to understand this verse in 1 Thessalonians 4, in your bulletin. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. They were concerned about those who had died before Christ's return. I don't want you to be ignorant, and I don't want you to grieve as others who have no hope. The dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ, the gospel has already been preached to them. They've already been made alive by the Spirit, and they will be the first, and we will join them. So what time is it? Time of Christ's suffering is past. He's enthroned in power at the right hand of God. Angels, powers, and all authorities in heaven and earth have been subjected to him. The judgment is ready. The end is near. Now is the time of the strong man's binding. Now is the time of the plundering of his house. Now is the time of the gathering of the nations in every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. And if we know what time it is, we have a sense of what we ought to be doing. It should be about our master's business. Jesus tells several parables about the master going away for a period of time, and he'll be back. And when he comes back, what will he find? Will he find his stewards about his business? Or will they be about their own business at some level? And so there is this this picture, this call that Peter, as he's writing to this struggling, suffering church, of what they should be about, of what time it is, so they know what they should be doing. And he says, all of this in verse seven brings a certain self-control. He says, therefore, the end of all things at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Right? It brings about a certain level of sobriety to talk about these things. These great themes of the Scripture, of world, you know, time-spanning truths of the reign and the coming of Christ and of the judgment and of the end. And there's this huge thing, and it brings about there should be a certain amount of control, self-control, and discipline in my life, there should be a certain amount of sobriety, of clear thinking. Sober-minded means not drunk. It's used as a metaphor. I think you shouldn't be drunk, period. (laughs) That that too. Um, Don't be drunk on wine, but full of the Spirit. But it's also a metaphor for clear-mindedness. Because sometimes we can be drunk and inebriated on other things. Peter, uh, let me hit Paul and then Piper. And Paul, they're both in your bulletin. Paul touches on these same themes. of If we know what time it is, what should we be doing? And he says we should be wise. Really wise if you know what time it is to do the right things with your time. And so he says, look carefully how you then, it's in your bulletin, Ephesians 5. Look carefully how you walk. Not as wise, unwise, but as wise. Right, Making the best use of time, doing the will of God. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, because that's what we should be about. Don't get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be dead to sin, but alive unto God, being wise, knowing what the Lord's will is, and being about His business. Right, That's what Paul says. But the danger is this, what Piper speaks to, and it's that, that the world is inebriating. To be inebriated means to be drunk. Piper says this, there's something about the present age and the present world that tends to put some of us out of our mind and make us drunk. Because we love the world and we overdo it. We overparticipate participate in, in all of its stuff. He says there's something about it that tends to put you out of your mind and make you drunk. That's the way it is when you drink up this world. It puts you out of touch with the reality of spiritual things, the things we've been talking about. And only one thing will make you a person of prayer, a person connected with reality, namely sobering up from the addictive, inebriating power of worldliness so that we might be set free from those passions and live the rest of our lives on the earth for the will of God. See, it's so easy to be concerned about the wrong things. Some of us are concerned about some things you know, we can get worked up. It could dominate our world and our landscape. Our minds can be full of them. And, and it's so easy to be so full of the wrong things, be so worried about the wrong things, to let the wrong things dominate. This is why he says you must be self-controlled and clear-minded to major on the majors. There's that guy who said, don't sweat the small stuff, number one. Don't sweat the small stuff. Number two, it's all small stuff. He talks about what we should be doing, and I, I, I need to wrap it up. And so there's a whole thing in here where he talks about what we should be doing. And this little section here at the end really describes Christian community life. It describes church life. Everything he describes here you can't do by yourself. There's no Lone Ranger Christianity, just me and Jesus, I got this, I'm out there. Right? What he describes is loving each other, showing hospitality, which means being with each other, hosting each other using our gifts to serve one another, right? Not just to serve, but to serve one another. In other words, God has made you a steward of good gifts. He's given you gifts. He's given you things that you're good at, things that you like to do, things that you are gifted to do. And he says, we are stewards of a gift. To be a steward means that we're responsible and accountable. I've given you something, and I expect you to do something with it. You're accountable for using it. And he said, God has given us Stewards of God's varied grace. One translation said, God's multifaceted grace. That means some of you are hands and some of you are feet. And some of you are eyes and ears and noses. And it's, it's a multifaceted thing that he pours out there. Uh, and he says, but whatever your gift is, use it. Right? Verse 10 is do something. As you've received your gift, use it. As you've received your gift, use it. Use it to serve one another. Do something. Be about the master's business. Be a good steward of what grace he has given you, whether it's speaking, whether it's serving. Because in all of it, God is to be glorified. And some of this, just as a reminder, we're in almost the middle of July, which just blows my mind, that this is where we are, midsummer. But in July, in the beginning of August, is when we're trying to put together ministry for the rest of the year. Because we start in August. And so... We're looking for small group leaders. You may get a call. We're looking for some folks to help with some aspects of the campaign still. Some people will help do phone calls and do some other things. We're, we're, we've got some holes in our children's Sunday school teaching, I think. Some of you may be asked in that direction. Uh, we're needing helpers probably for Sunday night in the children's ministry opposite of our small groups. You've heard that we have a sign-up for this pre-service team. It says in here, show hospitality without grumbling. We're, we're, a, we're a church home. We want people to find their home here as their church home. And so as hosts, we want people as they come in to feel welcome, you know, and to have friendly. And we just want to put together a team where once every two months, you know, you're on to be out front to be the host. You know, it's, it's not complicated. It's not an extra night of the week. You know, it's not difficult. Uh, it, there's one training session during Sunday school in August sometime You know, we're looking for people to take turns doing what Peter says. Show hospitality to one another. Do it without grumbling. So consider it. Pray about it. There are are a thousand ways. But now is the time that the strong man is bound. We're plundering the nations with his gospel. The church is on the move. The kingdom is coming. His will is being done. Peter, as he thinks about these, these move, things, moves in. He says, so just, here's to just sum it up. Do everything that God may be glorified. What kind of change of mind? What kind of thinking? What kind of perspective, he says? Just, if you got any doubt about it, do everything so that God will be glorified. If you're not sure whether you should do it or not, is God going to be glorified in it? No? Then maybe you should rethink it. You know, but do everything so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion and f- forever and ever. What time is it? Do you know what you should be doing? Are you about the master's business? Let him speak to you today to call you into his service. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you that sometimes it startles us out of our lethargy, out of our dozing. Father, it is very easy to be about the wrong business. It's very easy to be concerned about the wrong things. Will you help us? Will you come near this morning and fill us with your spirit and give us eyes to see what time it is so we know there's a deadline, That days are evil, that we might use our time wisely and well to bring honor and glory to you through Christ in the ways that we pour ourselves out for you and your kingdom. These things we ask and we pray in the strong name of Christ. Amen.